0: And now a reading from the gospel according to St Mark chapter 10 Verse 35 and following, James and John, sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. And he said to them, What is it that you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one on your right hand and one on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? And they replied, we are able. And then Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. And so Jesus called them and said to them, You know what among, that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be a servant of all. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. This is the gospel of the Lord. Well, I don't know about you, but I have worked some really lousy jobs. My life. Remember that show that used to be on um, Dirty Jobs with Micro? The premise, of course, of the show was that Micro would sort of travel around and do some of the dirtiest jobs in the world. And I watched a few, a number of them, I guess, probably over time. And although I didn't see any of my previous places of employment, I'm pretty sure at least one or two of the businesses where I punched a time clock must have been featured at some point. I rust proof cars, spraying this sort of sticky black tar-like stuff onto the underside of cars. And as part of that job, I periodically have to get down in the drainage trough hip deep and scoop out all the nasty rust-proofing material and other chemical runoff so that the owner didn't get fined for letting it drain into the sewers. Yeah, that was, that was fun. I've worked as a telemarketer, a hospital caterer and a press operator stamping out clutch plates for cars, car part manufacturers who supply the big three in Detroit. I worked for one summer making retainers and other dental devices. I've worked at a bread factory, a flooring manufacturer and a medical device plant. I delivered pizzas for Domino's, and I even wore a powder blue polyester double-knit uniform when I worked at McDonald's way back. I've been an assistant manager at Speedway, a seasonal delivery helper at UPS, and a framer for a building contractor. I managed a youth basketball league, worked as a janitor, assembled fishing lures. And sold Cutco knives. I've done all kinds of really interesting jobs. One of one of my favorite commercials of all time it still makes me laugh. It was it was for the job site monster.com years ago. And if you saw it, you probably remember it. It's, it's, it's shot in black and white, and it features a parade of sort of fatalistic-looking young kids, about 7 to 11 years old. And they're all looking into the camera and talking about their future plans. And one says, when I grow up, I want to file all day. Another says, I want to claw my way up to middle management, be replaced on a whim, I want to have a brown nose I want to be a yes man yes woman yes sir coming sir anything for a racer. sir when I grow up I want to be underappreciated and a little girl says I want to be paid less for doing the same job and another little girl says I want sunshine blown up my dress and then the 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 screen goes black and and words pop up what did you want to be now I the point I'm trying to make isn't that doing dirty jobs or less glamorous jobs are somehow beneath our dignity or, or, or that there's something that talented people shouldn't ever be saddled with doing because if Buddhism teaches us anything it's that there's meaning to be found even in the simplest and least glamorous tasks no, the, the, the point is that though we should never consider any work beneath us. We have to be honest, I mean, just as a matter of simple social observation about the fact that almost no one grows up wanting to rust-proof cars or climb the vocational ladder to telemarketer. Turns out children don't actually aspire to the prospect of clawing their way up to middle management. Now, we live in a culture that values money and power and beauty, and if you want to get ahead in this world, our culture is quick to let you know just who you need to be, what kind of a job you need to have, and how much money you should possess in your bank account. And when you get the right amount of it, it's quick to tell us just what kind of makeup or facial we need to possess in order to be able to... Keep hold of all that money. I mean, we know what occupying the top rungs of the socioeconomic ladder look like. We see it on TV. We know what kind of cars you're supposed to drive, what kinds of watches you ought to wear, what kind of double oak cask strength bourbon you should keep in your liquor cabinet, where you're supposed to go on vacation. We know what you're supposed to look like, how smooth your skin's supposed to be, How good your breath should smell. But Disney's taught us how little girls are supposed to look and Marvel's taught us how little boys are supposed to want to look. We've gotten the message. I mean, we we know what winners look like. Large and in charge. According to our culture, a meaningful life must include Not just excellences, but excellences that everybody recognizes as worth possessing. I mean, outside the state fair, for example, being the best pickle canner isn't going to bring you the kind of acclaim that our culture believes is worth pursuing. Though that might once have been a way to earn social capital, it is no longer the case. No, we know what prestige looks like. And apparently, James and John in our gospel this morning have gotten the memo themselves. They, they bought the age-old belief about what it means to get ahead in life. And so they come to Jesus and they ask if, you know, when he comes into his glory, whether maybe they can have seats on the 50-yard line. See, of course, there's a flaw in their plan, isn't there? Because unfortunately for them, it's not immediately apparent from where they stand but it's there nonetheless. In fact, they might not they, they they might be forgiven for not understanding their error at all because it cuts against the grain so much. Now, I'm not saying that they're entirely dim. They know enough to know that this Jesus guy is going places. They've heard the rumblings about Messiah at the edges of people's conversations. They. They know that the Jesus' super train's is about to leave the station. The problem is that they believe it's going in a completely different direction from where Jesus seems to be heading, which, as we pointed out last week, is on the way to Jerusalem and a particularly gruesome reckoning with an executioner, someone who has his own dirty job but who operates with a federal pension. Now, James and John think they know, but they show by their question that they really don't have a clue what Jesus is about. So our gospel this morning comes right after what is regularly called the third passion prediction, which is to say the third of those passages in the gospel that talk about Jesus' imminent betrayal into the hands of his enemies. Now, three times in Mark, Jesus says he's going to die and be raised again. Three times the disciples demonstrate that they don't get at all what he's talking about. Today's text is the third time the disciples demonstrate that they just don't understand what's at the heart of Jesus' ministry. But as Rolf Jacobson suggests, perhaps passion prediction isn't the best way to understand what Jesus does in telling about his impending death. Jacobson argues that we would do better to understand these occasions as interpretations of Messianic identity or, 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 or announcements of Messianic mission. Since to talk about them as a prediction is to imply that the most important issue is whether or not they came true. Which really is not the most interesting question. The most interesting question is what does being a Messiah, when Jesus does it, what does it even look like? Because what the d- disciples demonstrate they don't understand about Jesus' mission has less to do with whether or not it will come true, but what it might mean if it does come true. Oh, what do I mean? Simply this, the disciples ask to have important positions alongside the new Messiah to be included in all the grand happenings after Jesus comes into his glory. They assume they know exactly what that glory will look like. That they don't grasp Jesus is going to be killed as a common criminal demonstrates that they don't really comprehend what kind of glory Jesus is going to come into. a kind of glory to which no one aspires. Mark shows us that the disciples are laboring under the common misperception that still plagues popular understandings of the meaning of life. That in order for a life to be consequential, for it to achieve the kind of prestige we tend to think defines meaningful lives, well, then there has to be some kind of power and, 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 and success. There must be fame and beauty and money. There must be appropriate seats at the right hand and the left hand of the seat of power. See, the expectation is that the Messiah's glory will look like a life worth slapping up on a billboard, worth singing heroic ballads about, worth holding up as an example to all ambitious young people whose motivation in life it is to conquer the world. You see, that's the kind of thing that Messiah had always meant. Messianic glory was political, military glory. The kind won at the end of a sword. And then maintained with ruthlessness when necessary. Now to be sure, the kind of messianic glory that Jesus announces does, it turns out, come at the end of the sword. Unfortunately, it's the wrong end of the sword. The sharp, pointy end dripping with blood and defeat. But to be honest, we're, we're not that different today. I mean, the way the world is currently situated, people tend to think recognition and success come from some amazing aptitude or from an especially vigilant attention to detail. Beautiful, intelligent, successful. I mean, that's that's the message that gets pounded into us day after day. And it's, it's a hard one not to buy. Heck, even the church often buys that same exact message. I mean, even congregations know what true glory looks like, don't they? Big, important, swarming with new people, in particular those folks between the Desirable ages of 25 and 49 with children and business cards that describe professional jobs. Small, irrelevant, marginal. These these we can ignore. I mean, who needs failure anyway? Unfortunately, Jesus isn't singing from the same hymn book the rest of us are. I just wish he'd get with the program. Always flying in the face of conventional wisdom... Jesus redefines success downward. Small, irrelevant, marginal. See, that's precisely the kind of raw material Jesus seeks out to establish this new reign of God. You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lorded over them, but, and their great ones are tyrants over them, but it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. Not helpful. Popular Christianity promises a Jesus who wants to be our pal. Uh, A Jesus who doesn't want us to be inconvenienced. A Jesus whose real concern is that all our biases are continually reconfirmed for us. A Jesus who knows what true glory looks like. And if that were actually the case, it would make my job so much easier. But as I said, you know, I'm really not that good at my job. Instead, all I can manage to figure out how to give you is a Jesus who seeks out the small, the irrelevant, and the marginal. I mean, I'm only skilled enough to show up on Sunday mornings with a Jesus who thinks that glory looks like Losing, sacrificing, dying on behalf of those everybody else is walking away from all the time. See, apparently the whole idea of glory needs a refresh if we're going to be true to the life that Jesus describes. In Graham Greene's great novel, The Power and the Glory, The main character is this guy who's a whiskey priest. He goes unnamed throughout the book. But he's been hunted and pursued by authorities because at the time that the book takes place in Mexico, religion had been outlawed. And this whiskey priest... Finally, wearily, hears the confession of the man he knows is soon going to betray him to the authorities. Now, after hearing this guy's confession, the alcoholic priest thinks tiredly it was for this world that Christ had died. The more evil you saw and heard about, the greater glory lay around the death. It was too easy to die for what was good or beautiful. For home or children or a civilization, it needed a God to die for the half-hearted and the corrupt. In a world where people aspire to climb to the top, this whole Jesus thing makes more sense if he promises his followers prime seats at the State of the Union or in the boardroom. But when James and John ask for those seats, when... Jesus finally secures the glory that everybody's certain he must be aiming at. He just rubs his eyes slowly and just sort of shakes his head. Do you still not get it? I'm on my way to confront the folks who make the laws and sign everybody's paychecks. And I I just... God done telling you for the third time not only how it's going to end up with me dangling from a cross the object of shame and ridicule but that that's the shape of the glory you've got to look forward to if you are going to take this road trip with me. I mean, that's the cup. You drink. The baptism with which you will be baptized. That's the, that's the glory you've got to look forward to. Now, are you... Are you still sure you want a taste of that glory? And when the other ten disciples hear what's going on, what do they do? Do they correct their brothers in error? No. Once again, they prove with uncanny precision that Jesus has yet to make a point they won't fall all over themselves to miss. And they say, well, hey, wait a minute. James and John aren't that special. We want the same thing they're asking for. We want seats on the corporate jet, too. In our minds, we can see Jesus sort of break the fourth wall, turn to the camera, and sort of roll his eyes so hard that we can hear his pupils bouncing off the back of his skull. But you see, we've read to the end of the story. So we know Jesus did. Achieve true glory he was finally exalted, lifted up before the eyes of the world but the problem for those who aspire to always be first in line is that when Jesus was lifted up before the eyes of the world the only time he was high enough to look down on us from the heights of glory a glory that almost no one sees as glorious was when he looked down at us from the cross because from up there you can see everyone Not just the people who run a world that benefits mostly themselves, but more importantly, the people such a world so regularly leaves behind. The sick, the poor, the grieving, the disempowered, and the disabled. See, from up there, you can finally see the people who've been hidden in the shadows cast by a world where prestige is achieved by trampling those we've been taught it's permissible to ignore. Those whose votes and access to the system have been stolen from them those who've watched their children leave home never to return those who've been told their stories can't possibly be true and that even if those stories are true we don't want to ruin a young man's life by taking them seriously from the cross you you can see a world most people didn't even know existed But that's okay. Because the way God sees things, that world, the one with all those people who are so easily forgotten, that world presents to us a Jesus who knows the true meaning of glory.